So I looked, and the first article I found was about Asperger's. I'd never heard of it, and it said, Asperger's syndrome is a form of autism that happens in people with an average to above average IQ. And just that one sentence, I felt like I'd been struck by lightning. This is Taking Flight, a show about people redefining disability by challenging the world we live in. I'm Perry LaRock, and on today's episode, we are going to talk about what's funny with Noah Britton. So Noah was diagnosed with Asperger's syndrome as a young adult, and after working at a summer camp for kids with autism, he inspired the creation of Asperger's R Us, which was the world's first comedy troupe comprised of people on the autism spectrum with the help of some of his former campers. After a popular Netflix documentary and a docu-series on HBO, Noah and I had the opportunity to reflect on his pathway to comedy, his reckoning with autism, and a career battling with an audience that sometimes didn't know why, how, or when to laugh. In one of the scenes in your Netflix documentary, you tell the story about when you first received your diagnosis, mm-hmm. and you said you skipped all the way home because you were so happy? Yes. I can show you my actual diagnosis, too. This is my actual diagnosis from uh, exactly, wow, is that right? How old were you? Yeah, 18 years ago, so I was 20, a long time ago. So you were diagnosed late? Well, chronologically, it was relatively early. The reason I wasn't diagnosed when I was younger is that I'm old, and no one knew what Asperger's was before 2002, or really before like 2004, so... What was the experience like prior to that? I was very confused by many things. I felt a lot of shame over what uh, I later learned was totally normal Aspie behavior. You know, I'd be arguing with my mom and she'd be like, your tone of voice is really inappropriate right now. And I'd be like, I can't help it. And she's like, yes, you can. And so I just felt like I am bad and my mom hates me and I don't know what else to do. And I felt terrible about myself. Hot damn. How about somebody's call? Meet Noah's dad, Dave Britton. Oh, guess who's calling me? You can answer. We'll have a mic. Hello. He wants to know if I got on the call with uh, Perry. I'm talking to Perry right now, and there's a phone call interrupting our conversation. (laughs) Some things definitely weren't normal. I wouldn't characterize them as normal. Uh, and he wasn't normal and he wasn't average. Now, we were just raising a kid who probably had some idiosyncrasies and some differences and a whole bunch of them, very positive, unusual, but very positive, um, particularly his preschool years, like from the age one to five, particularly, just very unusual, not average, not normal. Me, I was 43 when he was born. His mother was 35. And so he joined a household of essentially 30-somethings. And um, my brother says, yeah, Noah was 30 years old when he was born. He fit right in. And he fit in just amazingly because he was so smart and so mature and so creative because 
his sense of humor was wonderful and great. And he laughed easily. And so we're essentially the humor and the joking is going on all the time. But it's 30 person level humor. The diagnosis was really liberating because it made me realize I was correct that I'm not doing this stuff on purpose and this isn't something that I chose to do. And so it alleviated a lot of that guilt that I had had and internalized for years of doing stuff that other people didn't want me to do. So that was huge. That was why I skipped home right after I got the diagnosis because I was like, okay, it's not that I have been a bad person. It's just that this thing makes me be different. So the real story of how I got my diagnosis is I went to a class called Disabilities in Education and Public Policy. It was really bad. I learned very little, except one week our professor said, find a journal article about giftedness. So I looked and the first article I found was about Asperger's. I'd never heard of it. And it said, Asperger's syndrome is a form of autism that happens in people with an average to above average IQ. And just that one sentence, I felt like I'd been struck by lightning. I mean, I'd never in my life found something that rung so true and explained so much all at once. I mean, it's like learning to read just in terms of the immediate impact where like, oh wow, now I understand all these symbols mean something. Like it was that, that intense. And it it was like divine in terms of the impact of it. So I went to the free psychologist on campus who had never heard of it. And I just sort of summarized why I think I have it. And he was like, all right, I'm going to do some research and get back to you next week. So what year was that? And uh, this was in 2002. So, So I came back next week and he was like, based on my research, yes, I think you do qualify. Also... Did you know lack of eye contact is a symptom of Asperger's? And I was like, no. And also, I didn't know I didn't do that. And he was like, so that's that's something else to remember. And he gave me a list of the positive stuff about Asperger's. And I was like, I don't really need this. I don't feel bad about myself. Like, I feel pretty good about the positive stuff. What I need is something to work on to overcome some of these issues I've been having in my life. But there were plenty of sources for that. Also, you know, Aspies have trouble with change, right? So having trouble with change means you don't grow and alter the stuff you are taught when you're young. So when you're five, your kindergarten teacher says, tell the truth. And you internalize, this is a rule that I will follow 100% of the time forever. I think Aspies are better off when they're given at the very beginning, when they're given the specificity of like, tell the truth in situations where it's not going to hurt somebody, um, perhaps. Anyway, so what I did was I took that very literally and was honest all the time to everybody. And so a girl in my 11th grade class was like, I'm taking this guy to the prom. And I was like, oh, you know, he doesn't like you. And she was like, 
oh, we're just going as friends. Like she was kind of backtracking and ashamed, which I couldn't tell at the time, but in hindsight was the case. And I was like, no, no, he despises you. And she, she walked to the bathroom and threw up and I had no idea why everyone was mad at me because i was like i'm telling the truth this is what you're supposed to do i don't understand why this is a problem and later after the prom my friend who she took was like it was okay that you said that because i think it got her to leave him alone when he really did dislike her and i don't know why he went to the prom with her i guess it's so absurd for me to imagine feeling like you have to do something that you don't want to do just because everyone else is doing it. Like it never made sense to me. Like if you don't have someone you want to take to the prom, don't go. Like, why did he go? Like it must've been a horrible experience for him to be around this person. He didn't like, like who benefited from them going. So a stroke of blind luck again or divinity whatever you want to call it i got a call one day from a guy who was like i was at a party and i heard about this camp for aspies that's hiring and i told them they should call you and i was like amazing and so then this guy who i'd never met uh who was at the same party with my friend from college calls me and he gives me my future boss's number and then i call him and he sets up an interview and he's like, how do you know Dan? I was like, I don't know Dan at all, but I, I knew a guy who was at a party with him immediately during that interview and no other interview in my life. I disclosed and luckily that was the right place to do that. And my future boss really liked me from that. And he hired me to work at the camp and that's where I met all these guys. And that was in Aunt five. And uh, so they were 12 and I was 22 and immediately Ethan was the first kid I met. And immediately I was like, Ethan is so funny. This is great. And it was the first time where I felt like the rules here make sense. The people here make sense. I mean, it's on paper. It sounds messed up. I was 22 and I was making friends with 12 year olds like in a very real way, like a real meaningful, we are on equal footing kind of way. And they, you know, maybe it's because when I was young, I delayed my own development because I wasn't finding an environment that would suit me. So I really stayed 12 and could interact with them on their level. My, my assessment was, he's just not mature enough to deal with what he's dealing with uh, in life. It's college, it's um, graduating, it's getting employment. Smart kid, good kid, but just he's just immature to the point of not being able to deal with these things in something you'd characterize as, oh, that's the adult normal way to handle that. Uh, he wasn't on board with that. I remember the very first day we had to introduce ourselves and I said, I'm Noah and I like dead puppies. And Ethan laughed really hard. And that was like the moment where I was like, we're going to be friends. And uh, we have been friends for 15 years since then for more than half his life. I'm really grateful for that. So, yeah. And then that was my first first day. I worked there all summer. I worked there for a couple of years nonstop. And then I would work every summer until 2013 when they made the movie, um, which uh, 
was the last year that I worked there because I got too old. Well, all of those guys seemed like they were pretty smart kids at the time. Yeah, they were great. I loved them. In 2006 was when I I ran my own group and Jack, Ethan, and New Michael were all in it. And they were all so funny. And then in 2008 was really when New Michael came into his own and we became really close. Like, you know, he was 15 and I was 25 and we were like, like I would call him for fun because that camp did something that they wouldn't do anywhere today. But they were like, look, if you are close with one of the campers, we encourage you to have a relationship outside of the camp because it's good for you to have sincere relationships with them. And it was interesting because, yeah, they would never let you do that today. They have this sense of like a uh, distance. And I think that professional distance eliminates the chance for genuine connection. And I saw it a lot. Like New Michael said, maybe it was when we were talking to the people at Mansfield Hall. New Michael said, when someone was like, what's the most important thing? He said, sincerity. And like, I very sincerely loved hanging out with those guys and was very much myself with them in a way that's not professional, but it was what they needed. It was what they benefited from was having someone who really wanted to have fun with them. Like one day, my campers weren't focused. They were like rowdy and energetic. And if you're bad at your job, this makes you double down and be extra controlling and punitive. So what I did was like, okay, new game. Everybody roll around on the floor yelling as loud as you can. And so everybody did that. And I was like, okay, this game is called Boo. And <laughs> for years, we would play Boo whenever people wanted. <laughs> Just, okay, everyone roll around on the floor yelling for no reason. And it was great. It got them to calm down. It was fun. And it was like a very sincere moment where we could all laugh together. You know, having the same sense of humor really helped us get along, but Ethan still references Boo sometimes. The comedy troupe officially started in what year? And how, how did you come up with that? 2010. So the guys in the troupe all left the camp in 2010. That was their last year. And during that summer, they were like uh, CITs, counselors in training. And um, I was hanging out with them outside of camp just as friends. And again, they were 17 and I was 27. And uh, so we were just like doing funny stuff as friends or whatever. And then um, I realized the guys at this camp are so funny and we'd been cracking each other up for five years. So I was like, let's do an Aspie group that gets this Aspie style of humor out there. Cause there's not enough of it. There's too much of this like Seinfeld or whatever neurotypical nonsense is popular. And so I was like, I want to do some absurd Aspie stuff. That's really funny. And so I was like, all right, these are, some of the funniest guys in the camp. And there were a couple others who I really wanted to have join the group, but they didn't live close enough, which is amazing. Like all of our lives would be totally different if they had lived on the Newburyport Rockport commuter rail line instead of on one of the other ones, because none of us drove. So we would have to ride the commuter rail, as you see in the movie, to get to each other's places to rehearse. 
So yeah, that summer we started talking about it and we started rehearsing and working on sketches. And at that point, it was still more like I'm the counselor because in the back of my head, I knew you're 17, this idea is going over your head, adults will get it. Or you're 17, this idea you just suggested is terrible, but I'm going to let you fall on your face and see what it's like to have a bad sketch or something. You know, like I would have that level of detachment as you have to when you work with clients and after enough years had passed they'd grown up and it became i'm just going to be honest with you guys and sincere as your friend we're on equal footing now and i think that sort of hurt our relationship because they were like noah's getting mean now whereas in reality i was just being more upfront with them than i ever had and uh you know, it also it pushed them to be better. It pushed us all to be better. It got us to be more professional. So we did one show in August of 2010 just for our friends for like, you know, 20, 30 people. And I think it went OK. There's a sketch in that show that we still do 10 years later, which I'm what sketch. I'll tell you the whole sketch because it's really short. One person is laying on the ground dressed as a woman. And the other person is a a doctor and lifts up a sheet that's over the woman's legs and goes, I'm sorry, ma'am, I don't think we'll ever find your dog. And uh, that's the whole sketch. So we had this conversation a while back when I first met you and you had Uh told me that you don't want people to come and see your show because you all have Asperger's. Yeah. But then again, your troop's name is Asperger's or Us? Well, so yeah. So the worst and best thing we ever did was name ourselves Asperger's or Us. So when we formed the troop, I knew in the back of my head, this is... Aspie comedy made by Aspies for Aspies. So I want that to be clear in the name. I was like, so I want Asperger's in there somehow. You know, it's deadpan, it's uh, absurd, and there's no connotations. That's an important detail. A lot of neurotypicals like to think there are connotations in what we do, and there are not. So people are like, oh, that's so funny that this character does this because it's like a reference to that. But no, it's never a reference to anything. It's just funny or silly and and that's it. So um, the Aspie comedy we write, you know, it's, it's a specific style. And there are Aspies with different senses of humor, which I did not know at the time. I did not know there are Aspies who are into like scary movie three or whatever, you know, just like stupid stupid stuff that uh doesn't have any comedy to it but it's just references to things like that that was something i filtered out i had worked with a lot of these people and been like you're not funny and you have a bad sense of humor but i wouldn't say that it would just be in the back of my head but so um when we were writing the first show one of the guys who used to be in the troupe but isn't anymore came up with a sketch about a toy store that only sold toys for aspies and he said, and it would be called Asperger's R Us. And I was like, this isn't a funny sketch at all, but that's a great name for the troupe. And the reason I latched onto it was entirely because it was the first name anyone had come up with that had Asperger's in the name. And I really wanted that. At no point did I think about the fact that the grammatical incorrectness of it is a reference to autistic people being stupid. In no way did that occur to me because... I never thought of autistic people as having any kind of connotation of being stupid or being bad at grammar. And 
it took me completely by surprise when people would be like, the name's so funny. And I was like, well, I literally don't know what you mean. Like it's Asperger's and then it's a toy store parody. Like what, what, like I didn't think about the meaning of it at all. And that again was a huge mistake on one level, but it also completely by accident brought a lot of people in to pay attention to the troupe who are like, oh, you guys are like making jokes about being autistic. That's so funny. But like, we never did that. And we would really be against that. And it sucked that people thought that was what we were about. And oftentimes people would watch an entire show where we would do the gynecologist dog sketch and afterwards be like, it was so funny when you guys made fun of being autistic because of this thing. We'd be like, no, we're not doing that. We've never done that. We've always said and we don't do this and it sucks that people think that for one i i actually think the humor is hilarious and Thanks. if you remember um so i helped you guys out with your sound when you guys were at the university of vermont <laughs> at the last minute you guys made me do it from backstage and there was a scene where the audience wasn't laughing as much as i thought they should be but i was laughing really hard backstage and people were like we could hear you laughing backstage <laughs> anyway and for that show I was trying to entice you guys to come up to Vermont, and that week was actually Autism Awareness Week. And I told you we would donate all of the money, and you immediately said, we're not interested. Uh -huh. We will come and do comedy, but we're not going to come and do comedy to support autism. Yep. And at that moment, I think I understood you guys a lot better, and it made so much more sense to me. And I understood the irony in the name, mm -hmm. but how, I guess, how do you, how exactly do you go out there and tell people that you're not doing comedy about autism when you have Asperger's in the title and you want to be funny because you have funny jokes and you're not funny because you have Asperger's. Mm. It seems like you have a needle, a thread there. Sure. I mean, the reason, the reason for the name is we do Aspie comedy. We do comedy that, that appeals to people who love airplane and Stephen Wright and, you know, absurdist jokes that aren't built on connotation that are not based on uh, awkwardness or some nonsense like sitcoms are stuff that's you know it's it's funny to a subset of the population who have this style of humor which is way more prevalent among people with asperger's that was always our goal was like we're interested in entertaining people with Asperger's who like funny stuff like this. You know, we are capable of doing comedy that I would consider bad, you know, like, uh-oh, I walked in on you while you were changing your pants. Like, that trash comedy that I really would love to just, like, eliminate completely. And so the goal was, I want to increase the amount of Aspie comedy out there. Honey, can you come in here, please? What is it, baby? I got some big news. Yeah? I'm pregnant. <laughs> oh, wow. That's really, really amazing news. I know, I think we're ready. I'm pretty shocked. <laughs> but I have some news, too. Yeah? It's going to make your news doubly amazing. <laughs> I'm bubble wrap. <laughs> I used to reference the original Kings of Comedy tour when people would ask us about the name. And I'd be like, I bet people, unfortunately, 
I bet white people would go to that tour and be like, it's great to, you know, support black comedy. Like they're trying, we're, we're supporting them. And like, it's not for you, man. Like it's for other black people who like Bernie Mac and, you know, Steve Harvey and Cedric, the entertainer, like that's who they were touring for. But I bet there were white people who are like, oh, it's cool to like, you know, help them out. I'm like, dude, like go away, go watch Benny Hill or whatever. Like this is if you love it, awesome. But like otherwise, like what are you doing? Like these people don't need your pity, you know, and that's that's what inspired my shirt. That's I don't need your pity was I was so tired of people being like, oh, these poor these poor boys are they're trying so hard and they're just not very funny. But like, no, you don't get it. Like there are so many puns that are flying over your head and there's so much absurdity you're missing. And it it's just it, it was endlessly frustrating. And I think that led us to decide we didn't want to do this anymore because <laughs> it's just it's such an uphill battle. And um the movie helped and the TV show. Now, the movie made that worse, but the TV show helped a little bit. The movie definitely uh, gave people the wrong idea, which, you know, it gave us a boost. We're grateful for that, but it wasn't the kind of boost we were looking for or expecting. So, In the movie, I've always been curious about this one scene that I want to ask you about. Sure. It's when you guys were at the train station, yeah. and um, there appears to be this kid in the background who's on the spectrum. Yeah. Um, and I... I found this to be like an incredibly intimate moment almost. Mm -hmm. I mean, it seemed crazy almost that you guys were all at this train station and the camera pans over and there's this boy looking at the train schedule. Mm -hmm. And there seemed to be this interaction that for most people could have been really different. Mm -hmm. And you reacted in a really casual way. You may never even, I don't know, you may never even thought about it, but I've always been curious about it. Yeah, I mean, it was it was not the first time the four of us were getting filmed and there was an autistic person nearby by coincidence, but there were not many times where that happened. But yeah, I we were waiting for the train and I... Uh, I saw this kid and I was like, this, you know, my Aspie dar is very strong. So I saw this kid and I was like, this is an Aspie for sure. And immediately the filmmaker was like, we got to film this. We got to film this to the, the other cameraman. And um, so I think they missed like 30 seconds of this happening before beforehand. And yeah, I don't know. It was a cool moment where I'm proud that I have the ability to understand what's going through someone like that's head to the extent that I do and that I could show it, you know, I don't know how other people would have reacted, but I think I reacted the right way. And, uh, yeah, Ethan could have become friends with that guy cause they liked the train schedule. It was con convenient that I had the train schedule in my pocket all the time and could show him cause that was the thing that brought that boy interested in interacting with me on any level. And yeah, that was, that was a nice surprise. Yeah, I don't know what to say about it. Yeah, just in some ways, had I been there with my family and we saw a kid playing on his phone or just like reading a book, right, that we would look over and think nothing of it. Mm -hmm. And you had the same sort of reaction and thought, hey, he likes the train schedule, mm -hmm. whereas a neurotypical family might look over and thought he was acting strange or that kid must have autism. Right. And you interpreted it in much more of a, like a non-stigmatizing, normal way. Yeah, I mean, it. it's... It's ridiculous that that's an exceptional thing that I did, I guess. But yeah, it's, it's, you know, 
I don't think it was exceptional as much as it was just natural. Yeah, well, I guess the fact the fact that I did that being notable, that's that's unfortunate, you know. That should be what everybody does in this situation, but yeah, it's to me it's it's just kind of the normal thing you would do cuz like Aspies have been my world my whole life. So after I got diagnosed and met some of these boys in the the troop and at the camp, I realized, oh, this is not the first time I've met autistic people like my friends from high school are not just nerds, you know, like we have other things in common, too. And uh, lots of lots of the people I've been friends with outside of knowing about Asperger's, we do have the diagnosis or qualify for the diagnosis and don't bother to get it. And, uh, you know, that that's been my world forever. And similarly, like, you know, you might have um, somebody who, uh, you know, you see wearing like a Patriots jersey or whatever, and you're like, oh, hey, Bill Belichick or whatever, like you can connect with them on that level. And to me, the fact that this was obviously an Aspie means we can connect on that level, you know, same, same thing. And that's really all it is. Doesn't mean I want to interact with every person with Asperger's, but certainly all of my close friends, uh, or I should say at least half of my close friends have been on the spectrum and, you know, we, we suit each other. So what's the update with the comedy troupe? You mentioned you guys aren't together right now. So we we disbanded two years ago, but then the TV show came out. We disbanded because we were so sick of people thinking the show was going to be like an autism awareness thing. And like among our many complaints with that is like no one ever goes to those things because they want comedy. Like if you're not coming to see a comedy troupe because you want comedy, the show's going to go bad. So we got really tired of people like are like oh i'm not supposed to laugh i don't want to <laughs> like yes you are we're a comedy troupe you know and they'd be like i don't know if that's like they just didn't know how to read us and yeah as far as being a troupe goes um we don't really communicate much and every so often some business thing will come up and that'll be it we were going to do like three shows this year that all had to get rescheduled. So maybe next July we'll do our show in Florida. Um, and uh, maybe in April we'll do something that'll be broadcast on the internet. But short of that, yeah, the, uh, the other guys are, are uh, talking more without me, which makes sense. I'm old. New Michael said something when we were on tour. He's like, oh, I want to stop hanging out with this old man and do something fun and for young people. I was like, yeah, I feel you. I don't want to hang out with this old man either, but I am him. So I'm stuck, stuck with him all of that, the time. And you guys should go be young and have fun like I did when I was your age. Yeah. Um, but yeah, I, I am. I am very proud of the comedy we've done. I'm very proud of the comedians we've got to perform with you know the only opening gig we ever had in our whole career was for emo phillips who's the best and so that was something where although the name misled people i think we can look back at our body of work and our performances and say we really had integrity and i'm really proud of that and the times where we have the audience in tears laughing so much is the best 
Noah Britton for taking the time to chat with me today. To hear this podcast and other amazing conversations with people redefining disability, don't forget to subscribe to Taking Flight wherever you get your podcasts. A special thanks to Noah for letting us use some of his awesome music in today's episode. For some fun bonus material and some other goodies, head to perilarock.com. This podcast was produced by Auto Vita. Sound engineering by Sean Henninger and Greg Williams. Theme music by my buddy, Andrew Parker Renga. Check out more of his music at aprmusic.com. Today's show also features music from film score composer Sean Henninger from the band Memory, spelled with two Y's. For more of his music, visit memorymusic.com or neonmoonstudios.com. And thanks to our sponsors, Mansfield Hall, a residential college support program for students on the autism spectrum in Vermont, Wisconsin, and Oregon. And Virtual Hall, providing virtual academic and social support for students attending college across the world. On next week's episode, Kelly Brush, founder of the Kelly Brush Foundation. From when I was hurt on the hill, I got taken down in a sled. I was in the ski patrol at the bottom, then an ambulance to the hospital. All that time I was talking to people. There are actually some funny stories because I was like kind of a jerk to people, I think. I was like yelling at people asking for pain meds because I was in pain. And she was like, you're going to get some soon. And I uh, apparently said to my mom, don't lie to me, mom. (laughs) 